Growing in God's Word and learning what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh. What are you willing to give up for the gospel? That's the question that I'm asking you to consider today. What are you personally, what am I personally willing to give up for the gospel? Have you ever had to defend yourself against some untruth? Have you ever had to defend your right to something? Today, we have what we refer to as the completed canon or, or the completed Word of God. And therefore, the Word of God then becomes my authority uh, as a teacher. And, and your authority as well. Anytime you're sharing with someone or teaching them or giving them a passage of Scripture, you're not doing it on your own authority. You're doing it on the authority of the Word of God. Hello and welcome to Crosswalk. In our series, Crossroads, where our faith intersects our culture, we've made our way to chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians, where we find a deeply personal part of Paul's letter as he defends his apostleship and the rights he has as a minister in the church. It seems like there was always someone trying to hinder the Apostle Paul's work. And I guess it's no wonder the enemy is never happy when the kingdom of God is expanding. And that was certainly the case with the Apostle Paul and his ministry to the first century church. And if Paul was going to keep the Corinthian church moving forward in their journey, in their walk with Christ, and not end up in the ditch of some theological heresy, if he was going to do that, it was important that they saw his apostolic authority, saw the authority that he had, and received his teaching as teaching from God. But as Pastor Clay is going to explain today, as amazing as it may sound that Paul was having to defend his rights, what is even more amazing is what he does with his rights after establishing them. It's a great teaching point for all of us who follow Christ. Now here's Pastor Clay with today's message. I want to lead you to the cross. If you have read the Gospel, the New Testament books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They, they have the, the label, they're, they're referred to as the Gospels. If you've read Matthew, Mark, Luke, uh, and John, if you've read them much at all, you've probably picked up on the fact that Jesus asks a lot of questions in his ministry. You could probably also surmise that because or since he is the Son of God, He was not asking questions to gain information, but rather he was asking questions as a teaching method. As the master teacher, Jesus used questions to lead people to answers, to lead people to conclusions. In fact, I came across a a book where the author claims that Jesus was asked in the Gospels throughout his life, recorded in the Gospels, Jesus was asked 183 questions, of which he only answers three directly. Contrast that against the fact that also according to that author, Jesus asked 307 questions in the Gospel. So, quite literally, Jesus asked more than 100 questions for every one question that he answered directly. The reason is actually quite simple. Uh, Let uh, Tyler show it to you on the screen here. Answers are designed to provide you with declared information. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. It's certainly appropriate, and there there are times when when just a declared statement of truth is, is needed. But that's what answers are intended to do. They, they're intended to provide you with declared information. But 
when questions are used not to gain information, but when they're used as a teaching method, when questions are used, here's the difference. Questions are designed to, di- to guide you to discovered information. Answers give you declared information. Questions can be used by a teacher to, to, or, or, to guide you to discovered information. Both are important. Both are needed. But, and you know that this is true, answers that you find or truths that you discover on your own or through a process rather than someone simply giving you the answers, answers that you discover on your own tend to have a greater and more lasting impact on your life as you work through and discover that answer on your own. So Jesus, the master teacher, used questions a lot. And so it's probably not surprising to us that the Apostle Paul picked up on that teaching method and he too uses questions to a great extent in his letters. There, there might be other places, I, I, I'm not sure, I, I didn't really check it, but you'd, you'd be hard-pressed to find anywhere in Paul's letters where he uses questions to a greater degree than he does here today in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. By my count, 19 questions in 27 verses. Now, I know there weren't chapter and verse in the original letter when it was really written, but, I, but in the 27 verses that we have, Paul asks 19 questions. And just like Jesus, Paul is using those questions to try and guide the Corinthians and us toward an answer that we can discover. Okay? So that's, that's what he's doing as, as we're working our way through this. You, you'll, you'll, you'll notice this. Let me also just uh, say this up front. You'd also be hard-pressed in Paul's letters to find a section that, are, that is more personal than what this is in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. There may be some others uh, in some other places, but certainly in, in the Corinthian letter, this is the most personal that Paul uh, gets into. You're going to notice in here perhaps a, a bit of frustration, a bit of disappointment, maybe a bit of pain uh, as he's writing this, but he's writing with purpose and he's going to ask a series of questions that are intended to bring out a truth. And so I thought today, uh, why, why don't we do the same thing as we work through 1 Corinthians 9? It would be appropriate for me to ask you at least a couple of questions designed to lead you to a discovered truth. Okay? So uh, let me start with this question today. Here's where we're going to start. What are you willing to give up for the gospel? That's the first question and I'm asking you to consider today, what are you personally, what am I personally willing to give up for the gospel? Let me read verses 1 through 18, and then uh, we'll, we'll get into it. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus, our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship, In the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Who at any time serves as a soldier 
at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple, and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. But I have used none of those things, and I am not writing these things so that I will so that it will be done so in my case. For it would be better for me to die than have any man make my boast an empty one. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I'm under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. What then is my reward that when I preach the gospel I may offer the gospel without charge so as not to make full use of my rights in the gospel father I pray for clarity uh, as we dive into this first part uh, here today I just pray for clarity uh, for for my mouth and for your people's minds to receive what you would have us to gather for this and make application for our lives even in this place today and as we leave here and I ask it in Jesus name amen Okay, wow, that's a lot going on, right? There's a, there's a lot going on in there. Let me start by saying that I mentioned a few, moment ago, a few moments ago the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, they are called the Gospels because the word gospel uh, in Greek is euangelion. Y'all say that with me? Euangelion. See, y'all are Greek scholars, you didn't even know it. Euangelion. Uh, eu, E-U, the prefix uh, EU, meaning uh, good or pleasant, and angelion, message or news, an angel or angelos is a deliverer of a message, uh, so uh, good or pleasant, angelon, message or news, so the gospel or angelion is the good news. That's why Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are called the gospels, because they record the good news of the, of the birth, life, death, resurrection, teaching and ministry of Jesus Christ and the part that is often neglected his promise to someday return and establish his kingdom on this earth so they are called the gospels because they they are this concentrated uh, collection of the good news of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ and as I also said a moment ago uh, this is a very personal part of Paul's letter we got hints early on in this letter, if you're with us in this series, we got hints early on that there were some who were uh, 
some who were get, casting doubt on Paul's authority in the church, at least in Corinth. That was probably due to the fact that some false teachers had begun to infiltrate Corinth and they had some, some false ideas. And if they were going to get the Corinthians to buy into those ideas, they were going to have to somehow cast some doubt on Paul's authority as a leader in the church. So in verses 1 through 3, we find Paul full on defending his apostleship. I mean, he is full on having to defend his uh, apostleship as he gets into verses 1 through 3 and why he is an apostle and why he has the right to, to, to do this, to, to, he ha- why he has authority and can tell them, instruct them what they should do. You know, I know in, in some churches and some denominations uh, today still, uh, some leaders in, in those churches or in some denominations will use the title apostle. They'll go by the title apostle. And, and I, I guess that's fine, uh, although the word technically means sent one. So you would think that an apostle would apply more to a missionary than it would a, a local church uh, official. But to get really technical, the term apostle is something that applied to the leadership in the first century church because in order to be an apostle, according to Acts chapter 1, verse 21-22, in order to be an apostle, you had to be an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. As far as I know, there are today no eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ still with us today. Like I said, I guess it's okay if they want to use that title, but technically, according to Acts chapter 1, you had to be an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. That's why Paul mentions it here that he had, have I not seen Christ? That's why Paul mentions it, because, because he knows that, that they need to know that he has seen the risen Christ. And, and he had on the road to Damascus, and then later as he taught him in the desert, but, but he had seen that. So, so he's, I meet that qualification as an apostle. So he's establishing his apostle. By the way, this wasn't an ego thing for Paul. I, I guess y'all would probably know that, but this wasn't an ego thing for Paul that, that he was demanding that they call him by his title, Paul, an apostle. It wasn't about that. It was important for the Corinthians to believe in, in Paul's established apostolic authority because, as I said a moment ago, and as we've said throughout this series, there were all kinds of false ideas, false teaching, false theology floating around out there, false philosophies. And if Paul was going to keep the Corinthian church moving forward in their journey, in their walk with Christ, and not end up in the, in the ditch of some theological heresy, if he was going to do that, it was important that they saw his apostolic authority, saw the authority that he had, and received his teaching as teaching from God. That's why he's establishing, yes, I am an apostle. It's a little different for us today, because today we have uh, what we refer to as the completed canon, or or the completed uh, word of God. And therefore, the word of God then becomes my authority uh, as a teacher. And and your authority as well. Anytime you're sharing with someone or teaching them or giving them a passage of scripture, you're not doing it on your own authority, you're doing it on the authority of the word of God. So it's a little different for us today, but it was important for the Corinthians to understand Paul's apostleship. So in the verses then that follow, Paul is going to, you're going to see how Paul systematically and logically lays out this argument for why uh, he is an apostle and why as an apostle he's entitled to uh, receive uh, uh, compensation, material and financial support from 
the church. You're going to see as that, that comes out there. You're going to see some other things about that. It was very interesting. But, but he's, going to, he's going to bring that out because he's establishing this, this truth. And he, and he wants to build this case so that they understand, yes, he is an apostle. Yes, he has the right to do that. And, and I'm circling back to the idea that I asked, the question I asked from the beginning, what are you willing to give up for the gospel? I want you to keep that in mind. So Paul begins to lay this out and to, to defend uh, the rights that he has. Now watch it. Let me read it again in verses 4 uh, through 6. Paul says, Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Well, of course, everybody can eat and drink. Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from work? You sense a little, little maybe irritation or agitation at this point, even as he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? The, the very idea that Paul is having to say this? By the way, the reason that Paul brings this up almost certainly has to do with probably some of the accusations that were brought against him in Corinth. It's probably why he's bringing up the whole financial support thing in the first place because, uh, and I'm, I don't know that ironclad proved this, but, but the implication seems to be that, that as they came into the church, as some of them came into Corinth, they were saying, oh, well, you, know, you, you know, you can't trust Paul. He, he's just in this for the money. He, he, he's just in this for what, what he can get out of you. You, know, you, 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 can't, you can't trust him. And so Paul says, do we not have a right to eat? Do we not have a right to do this and, and that? Do we not have a right? And he, li- he lists there, he says, uh, like the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, it is assumed that by brothers of the Lord, Paul is referring to the literal half-brothers of Jesus. We know that at least James and Jude, who were half-brothers of Jesus, in other words, they didn't have the same father. Uh, they had Joseph as their father. Uh, Jesus did not, but uh, they were half-brothers of Jesus. We know that at least those two came to believe in Christ and become uh, followers of Christ after the resurrection. And we know that James and Jude were intricately involved in the spread of the gospel. So, so Paul says, do we not have a right like the other apostles, like the brothers of our Lord, like Cephas, as we discovered in, in uh, chapter 1, if you were here? Cephas is, is who? Cephas is Peter. It's simply another name for, for Peter. Do we not have those, those same rights as, as they have? What comes clear here, at least what comes clear here, is that it was the practice of the church from the earliest days to financially support those who were working in the ministry, who, who, were, who were called out and were engaged in the, in the ministry, in the spread of the gospel. The church from its earliest days are supporting, and not only the, the people they're sending, but those that are going with them, even, even their families. Peter and, and his and his wife, and we know that he had a, had a wife from this passage and, and others, and uh, almost certainly children, the Lord's uh, half-brothers and, and their families, the other apostles, the, the church or churches are, are supporting them financially as they're going out and doing this work. And Paul is going to make it perfectly clear that that's perfectly acceptable to do, and not only is it acceptable to do, it, it's, it's actually the, it, it's, it's the right thing to do. You, you, you have to, to do this. And so then he lays out these series of questions, right? We met it a moment ago. He lays out these series of questions starting in, in, in verse 7. He says, does a soldier, when a soldier goes to be a soldier, do, do they, they have to support themselves or are they supported? Are they provided for? And the obvious answer, answer is they're, they're provided for. They're supported. Right, right? Uh, he, he goes on. He says, what, the, uh, the, the, the vineyard 
grower. Does he not have a right to eat of his fruit? And the obvious answer is, of course he has a right to eat of his fruit. The shepherd, does he not have a right to to drink the milk uh, from the flock? The obvious answer is, of course he has the right to to drink and use as much of the milk as as he needs to. And so, after, after laying out these examples, most of them agriculturally based, Paul then says in verse 11, so if we sowed, kind of an agriculture term, if we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? And the obvious answer is no. That, uh, that, that, makes, that makes perfect sense. And he goes on in verse 12. And he asks another question. He says, if others share the right over you, do we not more? He's not saying, hey, shouldn't we get more than they get? That's not what he's saying. He's saying, if there's other people investing in your ministry and, and, and being a part of the work there and you're supporting them, don't we have an even greater right because... I founded this thing, we started this thing, I'm reading between the lines, but I, I led many of you to Christ, I'm answering your, your questions, I'm sending these letters, I'm doing, don't we have, because we're even more involved, don't, that, doesn't that mean we have an even greater uh, right to it? And then this phrase, nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. It's the first little hint there. He's been building this ironclad case, basically. He's been systematically and logically walking through, asking these questions of which were simple answers, obvious answers, and the Corinthians are, they're, they're, they're right there. They're, they're, they're going along. I can even see by the time, well, let me, let's read it first. So in verse 14 comes this declarative statement after all these questions in verse 14. So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. Boom. Mic drop. There it is, right there. Paul has just systematically walked through this and built this case for why he has the right to this so that they understand. And and can you see what this is? This is not just proving his apostleship, although that's certainly important. But he's showing the Corinthians that they're doing the right thing by financially supporting the work of the ministry. That's their responsibility to 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 give to those who are giving to you. Sowing spiritually, they should reap materially so that they're able to invest even more in the ministry. That It's the right thing to do. Those labor in the gospel to get their living from the gospel, right? He's built his right. I guarantee you by the time he gets to this point in his letter, as they're reading it in the church in Corinth, I guarantee you there's people like shaking their heads. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, that's, he's absolutely right. Boy, that makes sense. That, that, that absolutely, that's absolutely true. And then comes verse... 15 and following but i've not used any of these rights well what did you just spend all that ink on telling us why you had this right then because it's not really about his rights it's about what he's giving up it's about what he's willing to give up of his rights that's what he's trying to teach the corinthians but i have used none of these rights and i am not writing this now to get anything from you I would rather die than to have my reason for bragging taken away. Telling the good news does not give me any reason for bragging. Telling the good news is my duty, something I must do, and how terrible it will be for me if I do not tell the good news. The King James and New American Standard uh, say, Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach because it is my own choice, I have a reward. In other words, he's saying, if I just... If I do this because, hey, this is a good way to make a living. 
Because that's what he's been accused of, right? Assumingly. This is a good way to me. If, I, if I'm doing it for that, if I'm just doing it because it's my own idea, then yeah, I get a reward. I get, I get compensated for that. But if I preach and it's not my choice to do so, he, he's compelled to do so. He's called to do so. He can't do anything else, right? That's what he's saying. I'm only doing the duty that was given to me. So what reward do I get? This is my reward. That when I tell the good news, I can offer it freely. I do not use my full rights. There it is. I do not use my full rights in my work of preaching the good news. Yes, I have these rights. Corinthians, I've clearly shown you I have these rights. Corinthians, you sure ought to be taking care of me and Barnabas. I've shown you that. I explained it to you. Uh, it, it makes common sense. Plus, I didn't mention this, but he also says, oh, and by the way, not only is that, and does that naturally make sense, but the word of God supports it. And he quotes Exodus chapter 25 uh, about the ox and, and feeding at the, the, not muzzling him so that he can participate and he can eat as he's working because he's entitled to that. And it's not just for the ox, he says, but it's for the, the thresher, it's for the plower, it's for, God's concerned about everybody. Yes, I've got these rights, but hey, uh, guess what, Corinthians, I'm not using it. Not using it. By the way, when, when he says, uh, he makes that statement about bragging that I might not, that I'd rather die than lose my, my bragging rights. Again, you can probably figure this out. It's not in a, not in a sinful sense, bragging. That's, that's, not, that's not the intent here. What he's saying essentially is, man, I'm proud of the fact that I'm not doing this just to earn a salary. I'm proud of the fact that I'm not a hireling. I'm proud of the fact that, that I, I'm not in this for the money. And I, I am proud of the fact that I'm not in this for the money. So, so we're back to this question. What are you willing to give up for the gospel? Paul's willing to give up his very living. He's willing to keep on making tents, which Acts chapter 18 tells us is how he made a living. He's willing to keep making tents as he's doing the work of the gospel because of the accusations that apparently have been made against him because the gospel was more important than his rights. Let me, let me read you a little excerpt from a book I, I just recently finished. It's entitled Tortured for Christ. It's the story of Richard Wormbrand. Uh, Paris gave me this uh, book. Richard Wormbrand was a uh, pastor uh, in, uh, in Romania during the uh, Second World War, even while the Germans were occupied, but when the communists came in and took over at the end of the Second World War, it's the account of the unbelievable uh, experiences, cruelty, torture, uh, abuse that Christians went through, the church went through under the communist uh, regime. Most of it is, a, or a good bit of it is about his own personal experiences, but those also uh, who were, were with him. I want to read you just a brief little excerpt <clears throat> from it. In... In the context of this question, what am I willing to give up for the gospel? Because the, the communists had made it clear, the, the Russians had made it clear, Occupy Romania, if you, if you just give up this stuff, if you keep your mouth shut, we're not going to have a problem. But if you insist on doing this, there's going to be trouble. If you insist on saying there is a God and that he sent his son that died on the cross and he rose again three days, if you keep preaching that, there's going to be a problem. Um, so he ends up being uh, arrested, taken right off the streets. The family didn't even know what happened to him. He was taken, put in prison, spent years in prison. <clears throat> but while he's in prison, he says, it was strictly forbidden to preach to other prisoners <clears throat> as it is in captive nations today. This was written in the 60s, by the way, and he's absolutely right. Still today, it's, it's illegal uh, in, in closed countries to, 
to preach to anybody, even if you're in prison, to preach to prisoners. It's forbidden to preach to other prisoners as it is in captive nations today. It was understood that whoever was caught doing this received a severe beating. A number of us decided to pay the price for the privilege of preaching. So we accepted their terms. It was a deal. We preached and they beat us. We were happy preaching. They were happy beating us. So everyone was happy. The following scene happened more times than I can remember. A brother was preaching to the other prisoners when the guards suddenly burst in, surprising him halfway through a phrase. They hauled him down the corridor to their beating room. And after what seemed like an endless beating, they brought him back and threw him in, bloody and bruised on the prison floor. Slowly, he picked up his battered body, painfully straightened his clothing and said, Now, brethren, where did I leave off when I was interrupted? And he continued his gospel message. Let me just read one other part. I was taken away from my wife and I did not know what had happened to her. He was snatched off the streets, like I said. Only after many years, not hours, or we might be going out of our mind, only after many years, I learned that she had been put in prison too. Christian women suffer much more than men in prison. Girls have been raped by brutal guards. The mockery, the obscenity is horrible. The women are forced to work at hard labor, building a canal, fulfilling the same workload as men. They shoveled earth in winter. My son was left to wander on the street when his mother and father were taken away. It was a crime to help families of Christian martyrs. Two ladies who helped him, his son, were arrested and beaten so badly that they were permanently crippled. A lady who risked her life and took Mahal into her house was sentenced to eight years in prison for the crime of having helped families of prisoners. All of her teeth were kicked out and her bones were broken. She will never be able to work again. She too will be a cripple for life. There's story after story after story like that. And, and sometimes when we, when we read a story like that, it, it, is so, it is so beyond our scope. It is so beyond our, our reality that we live in here in the United States in 2019. It is so beyond us that, that it's hard to almost comprehend that type of sacrifice for the sake of the gospel. But it is a reality. And even though the, that, that, the idea of something like that makes us hesitant to even, to even answer that question. What am I willing to give up for the gospel? It, it, I, I'm hesitant. Even as I was thinking about that and I was reading that story again, I was hesitant to answer that question because whatever I say is going to sound m- menial. It's going to sound puny compared to what these people have, have given up for the sake of the gospel. So we're, we're almost a, a, afraid or ashamed to even say anything at all or even think about it. But we should think about it. We should think about the question, what am I willing to give up for the gospel? Am I I willing to to give up vacation time to go on mission? Am I I willing to to give up some of my hard-earned resources to expand the kingdom and and contribute to this ministry and other ministries? What What am I willing to give up for the sake of the gospel? It's not an easy question to answer but it's a question that needs to be thought about and it's a question that needs to be that 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 
that I'm asking you based on what Paul's teaching here, but the question that you need to ask yourself in the quietness of your own home, in your time with the Lord, and to ask that question, what am I willing to give up for the gospel? Here's another one, uh, another question. If that one wasn't <laughs> tough enough. What are you willing to do for the gospel? What are you willing to give up? That, that, that's, that's one part of it. That's, that's something. But to press it farther, what are you willing to do for the gospel? Let me uh, read verses 19 <clears throat> through the end of, end of the chapter. For though I am free of all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. Remember, he's just established all these rights that he has. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. To the Jews, I became a Jew so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law. Though not being under the law. He says, I'm not under Levitical law or I'm not under that anymore. But I, but I, but I, will, I will operate in that framework as necessary so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law. Though, that's what he says, not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. In other words, he, he's not engaging, I'm not going to engage in sin to win people to Christ. I'm still under the law of Christ. I'm still going to be obedient to him. I'm still going to honor him with my life. But I'm going to meet people. Well, we'll get to that. So that I might win those who are without law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the, say it, gospel. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it, and joined in this work. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Wow, okay, there's a lot to talk about, right? But after establishing all these things, uh, his rights, he's, he's an apostle, he's all of a sudden, he says, but although I'm free of all men, I am voluntarily choosing to place myself under all men, meaning I'm going to put their needs ahead of mine. I'm going to be their servant. I'm going to be a slave to them, in essence, so that I might win them to Christ. So it kind of breaks down, I want to share it, to you, share it with you like this, it kind of breaks down like this, essentially what's, what Paul says. First, I'm willing to meet others where they are for the gospel. Just read all that in 19 through 23. To the Jews I became as a Jew. To those under the laws, those under the law. To those not under the laws, those not under the law. To the weak, I became to the weak. Essentially what Paul is saying, I'm willing to do what it takes to, to, to reach them. I'm willing to do, as the text says, that I might win the more. I'm willing to do this. I'm willing to, to be uncomfortable. I'm willing to, to do whatever it takes that I might win the more. That's my goal in this. So my Jewish heritage, when I'm around Jews, I'll make sure that I, that I use that in a productive way so that they know that I'm a Jew just like they are. I come out of the same background that they come out of. I, I, I know the same Old Testament that they know. 
To those that are legalistic and wrapped up in, 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 in legalism, I'm going I'm to go to them where they are. I, I'm going to practice. He's not, he's not coming under the law, but he says, where, I, where necessary, where needed, I, I'll come up under uh, things that I need to in order to uh, draw them towards the Savior, that I might win the more. He's always coming back that I might win the more. To the weak, which, which could be a reference to those who just don't have as much knowledge or those who are, who are more impoverished in the society, whatever the case may be. Paul wants to win the more. He wants to win them to Christ. And so he's willing to do whatever he has to do that I might win the more. What are you willing to do for the gospel? That's the question that I'm asking you today. Paul's willing to meet people where they are. And then he makes this statement. And it's in, it's in this following statements that we, that we find out that, that, Paul, that Paul has these rights, that Paul has all these things, but Paul, that for Paul, he's interested in meeting people where they are so that he can take them to where God wants them to be. That's really what it's about. See, we, we don't tend to do that. We tend to be like, oh man, they're, they're so different from me. I, 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 it, it's much easier to talk to this to this to this guy that, that plays golf. I, I can talk to that guy. He's got on a nice Nike polo and, and he, he, look, he looks like me. I can go talk to him, right? Right? Is that what we do? We, we just kind of naturally do that? We do that sometimes even in church, although y'all are fantastic. Y'all, y'all are so great about just turning and speaking to people. But we tend to do that when we, when we come to church. We, we turn and we speak at the people that we know because we're already comfortable. We're, we're familiar with them. That, that other person coming in the door for the first time, I don't know them. And so there's a, a sense of uncomfortableness. Paul says, I, I'm forgetting all that. I, I'm ready to go and, and meet people where they are so that I can take them to where God wants them to be. What are you willing to do for the gospel? William Barclay, in, um, in his commentary on this passage in 1 Corinthians, makes some statements that are really important for us to get a hold of. He says, readiness to throw himself into the inter- interests of other people. He was a man, meaning Paul, who would have enjoyed... Oh, I'm sorry, this is not Paul. He's, he, uh, Barclay is talking about a, a guy that he knew named John... His last name was Johnson. So anyway, he says, ready, about this Mr. Johnson, he was readiness to throw himself into the interests of other people. He was a man who would have enjoyed discussing the manufacture of spectacles with a spectacle maker. Obviously, Barclay was a few years ago. But he was a man who enjoyed discussing the manufacture of spectacles with a spectacle maker, law with a lawmaker, pigs with a pig breeder, diseases with a doctor, or ships with a shipbuilder. You understand? This Mr. Johnson, he's meeting them where they are. Barclay goes on. And, and he says this, he says, So long as we patronize people, so long as we make no effort to understand them, so long as we make no attempt to find some point of contact, we can never get anywhere with them. Paul, the master missionary who won more men to Christ than any other man, saw how utterly essential it was to become all things to all men. And then he finishes up by saying, One of our greatest necessities, one of our Greatest, the church's greatest necessities is simply to learn the art of getting alongside people and the trouble so often is that we do not even try. I cannot begin to tell you how perfectly that 
fits with the evangelism strategy that we have laid out for cross-culture church. And the idea that we have got to have a burden for the people around us. We've got to be looking at them from the perspective of eternity. And then we've got to look for opportunities to engage in their life. Invite them over for dinner. Interact with them in, 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 at the water cooler at work or, or uh, at the fence in, the, in my, my backyard neighbor or whatever the case may be. We have got to be intentional about engaging the world around us unless, as Barclay says, we're says we're not even willing to try. What are you willing to do to do for the gospel? David Pryor is another biblical commentator. Also, uh, his commentary on this passage, he says, a veritable spiritual chameleon. That's what Paul was. Paul's versatility in seeking to win men of all backgrounds to Christ challenges us to cross the culture gap between the Christian subculture of cozy meeting and holy talk and the pagan culture of our local community. The task of identification with and incarnation into our contemporary paganism of all kinds is one of the biggest tasks confronting the church. Ladies and gentlemen, the, the, the world is not coming to us. There may have been a time when, and there was, post-World War II, you could build a church, you could open the door, and people would just come in. That time has long since passed. The world is not coming to us unless we first go out and try and engage and meet them. And draw them in, yes. Build relationships with them, yes. Share our testimony, yes. Do whatever we have to do. But if we do not do it, what are you willing to do for the gospel? So Paul says, I'm willing to meet people where they are. Here's here's a second idea real quick. I'm willing to beat myself when needed for the gospel. It may sound a little strange, but stay with me. Paul says in, uh, in verse 24, He says, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Now, don't overanalyze this, okay? Paul's not saying that only one person gets into heaven. He's not saying that only one person gets the reward in heaven. Remember the context. He's talking about uh, running in this place. And by the way, we start to break into this section. I started to say this a moment ago. We're starting to break into a section where it becomes clear that Paul was a bit of a sports junkie. He's no Matt Fleming, but, but, he, but he's becoming a bit of a, a sports junkie. It is not the priority of his life, but, but he enjoys sports. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. He's not saying that only one person gets the prize in heaven. He's saying, if you're in a race, don't you want to win? I mean, I mean who, who, who enters a race and says, man, I sure hope I come in fourth. Why would you do that? And, and, and he says, folks, and he's making the application. This is for the gospel, right? What are you willing to do for the gospel? So basically he's saying, why would you half donkey it? Why would you not give it everything that you've got? It's the gospel. I mean, the only thing riding on this is the eternal destiny of the people that you and I know. That's all. So why would you run for second place? Run at this like it's the most important thing in your life. Listen. Real, real quick, uh, a couple weeks ago I mentioned that it was Master's Sunday, two or three weeks ago it was Master's Sunday. Some of y'all may be aware that uh, Tiger Woods won the Masters. Some of y'all in here scoffed and said he was done, never win a, again. I, I, few people said that. I won't mention them by name, but, uh, <laughs> but, but he, he, won a, he, he won his uh, 15th major, his 5th Masters jacket, his 81st PGA win overall. He's one shy of the all-time record set by Sam Snead back in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, 30, 40, 50, 60. Anyway, 81 PGA Tour wins. Fifth 
green jacket. 15th major title. I want you to see something. I want you to see an interview that, was, that Curtis Strange, who was a PGA player himself, and was a good PGA player, won a couple of U.S. Opens, um, but he was, he was past his prime. But uh, when Tiger Woods turned pro in 1996, he was getting ready to enter his first tournament in 1996. I want you to hear this interview between Curtis Strange and Tiger Woods. What would be a successful week here in Milwaukee? Uh, two, two things. I think if I play four solid rounds, uh, we'll go off to a good start today. Uh, if I can do that for three more days, then I'll be very happy, and uh, a victory would be awfully nice, too. A victory. Mm. Do you think, um, to me, that comes off as uh, a little cocky or brash, especially talking to the, you know, the other guys on tour that have been out here for years and years and years, and you know, certainly an incredible amateur record, but what do you say to those guys? Well, I've, When you come out here, you're free, you know what I'm saying, your I first understand. pro tournament, and you say, you know, I can win. Oh, I understand that. Um, I've always figured that why go to a tournament if you're not going there to try and win? There's really no point in even going. Um, that's the attitude I've had my entire life, and that's the attitude I will always have. Um, as I will explain to my dad, second sucks, and third's even worse. Uh, it's just a feeling But on I tour, have. that's not too bad sometimes, though. That's not too bad, but I've, I want to win. Um, that's just my nature. You'll learn. <laughs> I'm just kidding you. I'm sorry I had to say that. Yeah, he learned, Curtis. He learned. 81 victories. You understand, what, you understand that mindset? Why would I play for second? That's what Paul's saying. Why would, I, why would I run to come in second? Okay, real quickly, let's go on. He goes on and he says in verse 21, Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They, they uh, then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we, and imperishable, the games that Paul is referring to is almost certainly what, are, what were known as the Isthmian games. They were conducted right there in Corinth every three years. And other than the Olympic games, the, the Isthmian games were second in the world only to the Olympic games in notoriety and fame. The greatest athletes in the world came into Corinth every three years to compete in the Isthmian games. And when Paul begins to paint this, this word picture, so to speak, in their minds... They know exactly what he's talking about because they can see it. Because every single one of them have been there. Every single one of them been on that field. Every single one of them have looked down there from the stands and looked at those athletes and looked at their physiques and looked at the shape that they were in and looked at the, the, the willingness that they had to push their bodies beyond the boundaries that would even seem possible. For what? For, for a reef that is perishable? Now, some people might say, well, they do it for more than that. They, they, do it for the, they do it for the fame. They do it for the glory. They do it for the accolades. They do it for the cheer of the crowd. All of that is true, and all of that fades just like the wreath on their head. The cheers fade. The accolades fade. The fame goes away. Says, well, we do it for something else. And how do they do it? How do those athletes push themselves? How do they do that? Well, the text says that they exercise, that the athlete exercises. Uh, agonizomai is a Greek word. Exercises, in, in my opinion, in the English does not fully cover it. Our English word agony comes from that same Greek word. That's what he's saying. Those athletes put themselves through you know what. They, they push themselves beyond what is even possible. They, 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 they agonize over what they have to go through in order to win a stupid little, I'm sorry, a, a silly little wreath that it's just going to fade away and not be worth anything. 
Why, why would we let them do, watch them do that and we would not do, do, do something for the gospel for a wreath that is imperishable? Why would we not do that? What are you willing to do for the gospel? And so, Paul says, verse 26 and 27, Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. That's a poor choice of, of uh, translation there, quite honestly, but let, let me get on. Um, I run in such a way as not without aim. Yes, Apostle Paul basically says, hey guys, I'm just going to tell you, so I'm just telling you all right up front, I'm not running for second place. All y'all may be running for second place, but I'm running to win. I don't run just to be out running like I enjoy it, as if people would actually do that, actually enjoy running. I don't, I'm not running just because I, I think I enjoy it. I'm not, I'm not just thrashing at the air. I intend to hit my mark when I punch. I intend to hit my aim. And so what do I do? Paul says I, the English translation is discipline. I discipline my body. Again, my opinion, a weak translation into English. The Greek word, in case you're interested, I'm sure you all are, is hupaiatso, which literally means to hit in the face or to hit below the eye. Ah, now you all understand my outline, don't you? I'm willing to beat myself for others. I, I, I discipline, I, I be, it's not, by the way, it doesn't mean it in a second, in an aesthetic sense that he's literally beating himself up to show that how spiritual he is. What Paul is saying is, I am not going to let my flesh keep me from accomplishing what God has called me to accomplish in the gospel. I'm not going to let my flesh let me focus on this world. I'm not going to let my fears, I'm not going to let my uh, being intimidated, I'm not going to let my doubts, I'm not going to let my, my uh, draw towards the world, I'm not going to let any of that stuff keep me. I'm going to discipline, I'm going to beat my body if I have to. I'm going to beat this flesh into submission because I intend to win. That's my goal. What are you willing to do for the gospel. I want to ask you this morning, as we get ready to close, just briefly this morning, I want to ask you, in the context of 1 Corinthians 9 and all that Paul has said and some of the stuff we've talked about and looked at, his willingness to deny his own rights and, and beyond that, not only deny his rights and, and give up whatever he has to give up, but he's willing to do whatever he has to do. He, he, he considers himself a slave. He, he's willing to meet people where they are, no matter where they are in the, in the messiness of their lives, and people's lives can be a mess. He's willing to meet them in their fears and their doubts. He's willing to meet them uh, wherever they are. He's willing to meet them and he's willing to, to bring his body, this, this flesh that wants to do other things, willing to bring it under subjection. So what are you willing to do today? Here, here's what I would ask for people across culture to at least consider committing to today. One, to continue to commit to ask the question. I will continue to promote that because I, I, because I know how it is. I know how it is in my own mind, how I can just let something drift away and not remember it to renew your commitment to say i'm going to ask the question every time i see a person i'm going to ask where is that person going to spend eternity because i'm going to care i'm going to i'm going to teach myself to care about people's spiritual destiny rather than just my own material world and what i'm wrapped up in right now to commit to ask the question because as i said earlier we've got to build a burden we've got to care first and foremost second to commit to at least three times this year having a neighbor over for dinner Three times this year I'm asking you to have a neighbor over for dinner. Three, three nights out of 365. Surely we can put that in our schedule somewhere. Make one a lunch if you want to. 
but at least three times. Because here, here's what I think. If you'll build this burden, if you'll care, then you'll do at least three. But at least three times say, you know what, Lord, right now I'm saying to you, I'm committing to having three people over for dinner this year who are my neighbors or I work with or something so that I can build a relationship with them so I can meet them where they are in their stuff and try and get to know them and what's going on and happening in their life. Third, uh, to commit to invite at least four people this year to attend Cross Culture Church. 52 Sundays, I'm just asking you to invite four times this year, invite somebody. Now, they may or may not come, but I'm asking you to at least make four attempts or efforts in the course of this year. Again, I think if you do the first, if you'll commit to the first one, you'll end up doing more than that. But I'm asking for at least four times this year to say, I'll, I'll actually tangibly go up, hand somebody an iVite card, and invite them to come to Cross Culture Church at least four times this year. And then uh, the last one, and there's just a few, I just, just give you an idea tonight, today. Commit to being willing to sacrifice if needed for the gospel. That's what Paul is willing to do. That's what Richard Wormbrand and believers in communist block are willing to do that's what believers all over the world are willing to do what are you and i willing to do for the gospel as we heard today in pastor clay's message the apostle paul used a series of questions to the corinthians to show them that he truly was an apostle and entitled to their financial support but because the gospel is more important the apostle paul chose to set aside his rights for the sake of the gospel that then leads us to two important questions for you and me What are we willing to give up for the gospel? And what are we willing to do for the gospel? As Pastor Clay said today, the only thing riding on our answer to those questions is the eternal destiny of the people around us. We're glad you joined us for this week's message on Crosswalk. Pastor Clay is the author of the book, I Get It, Discovering How to Really Live in the Promises of God. My prayer is that God would use it to help some people understand a few things about what it really takes to live in the promises of God. God wants you to live a life of peace and purpose and meaning and hope and fulfillment and contentment. He wants you to live a life without fear and without anxiety. Many people at some point in their life feel disconnected with the type of life and faith they read about in the Bible and what their lives look like on a daily basis. What is it that we're missing? What is it that we're not getting? If I'm not really living in the promises of God, why is that? That's what this book explores. I Get It is available online in electronic versions for the Nook and Kindle, as well as paperback from Amazon.com. And ask for it by name at your favorite local bookstore. You can go in bookstores and just say, hey, uh, have you got a book in here uh, entitled I get it from Clay Stevens. They can order this book out of their catalogs that they get. Get your copy today. Discover the promises of God and the steps you need to take to get it. And join us here each week online for another Crosswalk message. God has invited us to know Him through His Word, the Bible, a perfect record of God's revelation to man and applicable for every area of our lives. And if you're in the Raleigh area, we invite you to be a part of cross-culture worship. We meet at 1030 every Sunday morning at the Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. We're a church, but instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice real. Our desire is to be used by God to show people that a life built on the finished work of Christ on the cross is where they will find what they're searching for. Learn more about us, who we are, what we're about, what we do, and what we believe. Visit us online at crossculture.church. I'm not the water, I'm not the bread, but I know the place where your soul is fed. So hungry and thirsty, come and be blessed. I want to lead you to the cross. I want
Cross Culture Church, a new church for people like you. Taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross. 